Hey, Team Health Tech, Peter Birch here, and you're listening to episode 201 of the Talking Health Tech podcast. Over the Christmas, New Year holiday season, I hope you are taking this opportunity to relax a bit, maybe unplug and take stock of where you're at. So we're going to be keeping this podcast ticking over during this period, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We alluded to it in the previous episode, and we've been talking about it in our THT Plus community forum. So for the next four episodes, including this one, you're going to have a special guest hosting the podcast and having a conversation with a different member of the THT Plus community in each episode. And so Michelle Gardner is a THT Plus member. She's active in our community forum. She's previously appeared on the bonus podcast. So a few people might know her. She's going to be your host for the next couple of weeks on this podcast, featuring conversations which are more geared towards personal development, growth, and mentoring. Because we're at that time of the year where you take stock on what's happened in the year that's passed and you think about what's important and what your priorities will be in 2022 and beyond for the new year. And I've listened to, to these episodes. They're awesome. Love the insights. This one today features Adam Brett from ResApp. And you'll hear Adam's perspective throughout this episode, in particular, keeping an ear out for his view on the importance of, a, of having a mentor and crushing that fallacy of the need to have a work self and a personal self. It's all just the one self. You'll also hear about the importance of being an authentic leader and building a feedback culture within the workforce and that power of being professionally vulnerable. There's lots more in this one too. So sit back, enjoy. And this is what I love. This is what it's all about in the THT Plus community, our membership for individuals and companies wanting to make a meaningful impact with the use of technology in healthcare. It's conversations, conversations amongst those wanting to make a difference wanting to improve personally, professionally, and commercially as well. So here it is after the music, you'll hear Michelle and Adam in this special holiday mentoring episode of Talking Health Tech. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Well, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. Hello and welcome to Adam Brett, Director of Commercial Partnerships from ResApp. So today we're going to be talking careers, challenges and more as we dive into a bit of a digital mentoring session. So Adam, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Can you give us a bit of an introduction? Who are you? Tell us. Who am I? First and foremost, I'm a father of three little boys and my lovely wife, Tamika. That's probably my core job. And then I have my second job, which is uh, ResApp Health, obviously. So I've been working at ResApp for about 12 months now and commercialising that business, uh, which has been really exciting given the stage and the opportunity that the business is at. Uh, prior to ResApp, I've been spending a lot of time in B2B sales, marketing and operations. I worked at Medibank Private for better part of four and a half years. Before that, set up the digital landscape and digital health elements for La Trobe University for 18 months, and then five and a half years at Australia Post prior to that through the e-commerce boom. So it's been exciting. It's certainly been through a, a couple of different phases of different industry overhauls, let's call it, being at Australia Post through the e-commerce boom and seeing that transition and now seeing what's happening across the digital health landscape. Nothing better than a pandemic to bring everything forward. It's exciting times. Wow, what a career. So what brought you to health tech in the first case? Oh, when I was at La Trobe University, it was starting to become really relevant. And I did a piece of work there to look at what digital health could be and probably should be, uh, particularly in Australia. 
and worked out that there were just so many different facets of digital health. So it's not just what the patient sees up front. You've got all the issues around cybersecurity. You've got the data that comes through any of the different platforms. And bringing all that together was actually really exciting because I think when you look at digital health, we've been such a traditional health country for so long and traditional as your bricks and mortar hospitals and GPs, et cetera, that when we look at digital health, it's an exciting time for actually putting a bit of power back into the patient's hands and being able to look after their own health. So I thought, let's look at that transition and ResApp Health popped up on the radar and we do respiratory diagnostics uh, on smartphones. So it's a very different way of kind of diagnosing respiratory issues. And have you found that the pandemic has really accelerated things for ResApp? Extremely. I think if we'd looked at it prior to the pandemic, it was very much walk into the GP, sit down, wait your turn, the GP goes through with you and, you know, looks at the symptoms, etc. We were looking for kind of getting that traction. But in Australia, prior to the pandemic, telehealth was almost an unknown, whereas now everyone's probably experienced it at some point in time, either directly or indirectly through family members. And when you look at the telehealth landscape, that's actually transitioned the way people think about digital health more broadly. So it's really exciting to see that people's behavioural change is starting to take shape as well. So I'd probably estimate it's probably brought forward the industry as a whole probably eight to 10 years, particularly for ResApp, it's sped things up. We kind of say internally it slowed us down because we had this commercialization phase that was kicking in that was meant to kick in at back at the start of 2019 but it actually sped it up as well because the industry's changed so much globally not just in Australia. And ResApp is an AI product right? Yeah so we've got a bunch of algorithms that can diagnose things from pneumonia or your lower respiratory tract issues. We're currently working on a piece around COVID-19 detection which is really fascinating, exciting in itself. So we're really looking at all of those different respiratory illnesses that we can see at the moment. So I also work with an AI product and I'm really interested to know what do you find as the biggest challenges with an AI product in a healthcare setting? Trust and getting probably bigger businesses and bigger corporates to actually understand what it looks like. There's a bit of a scary world around AI and people have a huge trust in it or no trust at all. And I think when you look at what AI could do to transform not just health, but globally different industries, it's so fascinating and so much potential there, but people have got to trust it. That's the first step. If they trust it, then they'll look at it. If they don't, they just completely shut it down from the start. That's definitely a challenging one. Mm. Well, robots are going to take over the world, right? And AI support <laughs> those robots. <laughs> yes, the Terminator has done us no favours. No. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to dive into the questions about you, which I'm really excited about. So first one is, if you could go back in time and offer yourself one piece of advice, what would that be? I love these questions too. I think when I've been going through my career, you kind of need to take a step back at times. And if I could go back to my 25-year-old self and unfortunately just turned 40 this year, or fortunately, whichever way you're looking at it, if I could go back to my 25-year-old self, it would just be slow down take everything in around you and somewhat enjoy it more. Because I think when you're 20, 25, even to the point of 30, early 30s, you're trying to climb that corporate ladder, but you're doing it too fast and you're probably forgetting a lot of the learnings along the way, the people around you. So I know looking back on it now, there were one or two people who were trying to give me learnings and teachings and being that mentor. 
who I probably ignored um, and I wish I hadn't because some of those mentors have got some invaluable information and as a young little upstart, sometimes you sit there and go, oh, those old people, as we called them back then, they've got nothing and we're going to come in through and we're going to conquer the world. The reality is they've got so much information to pass on, learnings that you can fast track your mindset by listening to them and taking the time to understand what they've been through and understand some of those learnings as well. So it really would be just sit back, enjoy that moment, listen to a lot of the people around you. Um, the two ears, one mouth scenario plays out because a lot of 25 to 35-year-olds have got a very big mouth and very little ears. So it's just to listen to people around you a bit more. I like it. And you mentioned mentors. Have you had anyone who's been particularly impactful in your career? So maybe a little later when you felt like you were better at listening? Yeah, I probably had two and very different ones. So in my early 20s, I got given a great opportunity when I was at Siemens, funnily enough. And I was in the internship program and the chief marketing officer at the time was my mentor. And he gave me some really good advice and gave me some great opportunities at the same time where he was like, to understand a business, you need to see the business as a whole. And going through, most people take a straight path trajectory. If you're an accountant, you're going to be an accountant and go all the way up. But his advice to me was be a bit broader. So go into sales, go into marketing, go into operations, go into product. Product at that point was very much a a different feel than what it is now. But he said, if you can start to go across all the different facets of a business, you'll actually understand the moving parts. And what you'll find more so is when you become a GM or a CEO, when people are talking to you about things, you'll understand what they're talking about. You'll be able to challenge the thinking, not just take it as gospel because you'll be able to engage in that conversation. And I took that on board and went through the career looking at different parts of the business. And then I had another mentor who I've still got now who gave me a very different perspective, which was very much turning the mirror back on myself. So kind of what do you want to be as a leader? How are you as a leader now? What do you like as a person? I love that whole concept that we used to have to deal with where you've got your work self and your personal self. And he crushed that in about two catch-ups and said, there is no work self and personal self. It's just one self. So they were really fascinating conversations. And when I have those conversations with Mike now, you need to have a mentor that challenges the hell out of you. So it doesn't just sit there and regurgitate all of their history and learnings, but sits there and challenges some of the thinking that you have. Because if you don't broaden the thinking, if you don't look at it through the lens of other people, you're going to be so restricted. And I think that's one thing about leadership that I find now is that a lot of people, they don't listen to those around them. They don't try and take the time to understand and seeking to understand and trying to get clarity. They just dictate. And then all the people that work for them just go, well, I'm not going to have an opinion because it's irrelevant. They're not going to listen to me anyway. So my mentor, Mike, has been really great in kind of going, no, sit back, need to hear the opinions of the room. You need to have the flexibility in your leadership style. You need to be, you know, engaging everyone from above, below, across the whole business to seek all of that clarity and feedback that they were able to provide. So it's been really interesting because it was two different things. One was my first mentor was about the career trajectory. The second mentor has been about me as a person and where I want to get to. We actually pressed pause a while ago on seeking that continuous career development because there was a few things that I needed to refine myself. So I spent 12, 18 months going through and making sure that I was refining those little 1% points that could bring me undone so that the next time I step into a role, I'm much clearer on what I'm going to do. That's a very long-winded answer, but we got there. No, fascinating. I have a bunch of questions from that. So you said in that moment, what do you want to be as a leader? How do you answer that question? That's a fabulous question. 
And it was. And I think that's when you're sitting there and you've got someone asking you those challenging questions, you do have to give it some thought. So I think most people go, you know, I want to be leading people and I want people to like me and all this sort of stuff. And I think as leaders, you need to understand that people aren't always going to like you, but they need to respect you and vice versa. You don't need to like the people that you're working with. You just need to respect them. And to do that, you have to understand how to find common ground with people. So you can't be dismissive in businesses, but a lot of people forget that. You can't just walk away from conflict, but a lot of people do. And that doesn't help get to the right outcome. So a lot of the leadership style that I'm looking at now is that if I am in conflict with someone, how do I get to that point of resolution or that point of mutual respect so that you can walk away from a conversation without burning the bridge for the next couple of years. That's actually really challenging. I think a lot of people would find in the businesses they work for that that doesn't happen. If there's conflict, then there's also a lot of politics that goes around behind the scenes and that's just disruptive for a business. So anything I step into, I'm looking to find, you know, how best way of working with my peers and my colleagues. I'm looking to find that commonality with senior leaders across the business as well and how I can help the people that work for me. And I think that's another critical one is that I'm not there to dictate. As a leader, you don't want to be dictating. You don't want to be saying to people, you must, you must, you must. I'm sitting there going, what roadblocks do you need moved to get your job done? You know, what are your goals this year? How can I help you get to your best outcomes and be your best self when you turn up to work? And also being there for people when they have those times of crisis where you can sit back and help them through it the best you possibly can too. I mean, that's that whole personal and work life. They're one life. So people are going to go through a crisis. They don't step out the front door and come to work and go, that's it. Crisis at home is behind me. They're going to bring it into work and you've got to help them deal with it as well. So that's my leadership style that's starting to be more prevalent than it has been before, which is probably a bit different to a lot of other people as well. That's great. And that was the other point I wanted to double click on was a bit more about that authentic self. So you mentioned that you had like a work self and, you know, home self, and I've done the same thing. But I was wondering, well, what did that look like to sort of align those two parts of you? (laughs) Oh, my work self, what a fantastic guy he was. You know, you rock up, you fake it till you make it, you say the right things, do the right things, kiss all the hands and butts above you and make sure you're doing all the right things. It got so tiring and that was the part that I'd go home exhausted by the end of the day because you were just trying not to step on toes. So transitioning and changing that because my personal self was very different. My personal self was a lot more jovial, outgoing, bring a bit of fun, etc. And that wasn't translating into work self. So I needed to put them on both ends of the spectrum. I had a lot of work to bring them both back to some kind of center point for me to work from, which was challenging because... The work environment isn't always accommodating for change and isn't always accommodating for people that don't like to do some of the political ass-kissing on the way up, let's call it. It takes time. It's not an overnight thing. You do have to take time. But what I worked through was more that I wanted the majority of me to be authentic and then if the minority part of me you know, had to do a little bit of the political game playing, et cetera, then that's not the majority. So it took time. It took some really understanding people around me. And I think one of the things that I will always thank the people that I worked with at that point in time was that we had a really good feedback culture. So we sat there and I openly said, here's the three things I'm working on as an individual and what I want to be as a leader. So if you see me stepping away from those things, please pull me up and please give me the feedback and come and talk to me after. 
having your peers do that and knowing your vulnerable areas, holy crap, that's just, you know, when you're sitting there with people who could be getting the next promotion that you want, you've got to trust those people as well because they could quite easily use it against you. But I had two people that I worked with who were bloody fantastic at it. I'd walk out of a meeting, they'd go, let's grab coffee, and they'd be going, so in that meeting, did you realise you did X, Y, Z and that that's not what you want to be as an authentic leader? And you get that feedback and you can instantly step back into what you did and you go, okay, I've got to auto-correct for next time or self-correct for next time. So I've had some really great colleagues who have probably advanced my career much faster and my personal development much faster than if I tried to tackle those problems by myself. And you mentioned feedback culture. So that organisation, was that something that you just stepped into and it was already this fantastic established feedback culture or is it something that you saw grow over time? In terms of the broader organisation, feedback culture was almost foreign to them, but my manager, who is now my mentor, instilled that into our small team at that point, and that was his way of operating. So he really made us all understand how it worked and how we needed to operate as a leadership team for the betterment of ourselves and our teams as well. But it was certainly, we were the odd ones out within the organisation, but over time, it slowly started to take traction into other areas as well. That's really great that your team could sort of build this culture within a different culture. Sometimes it doesn't work like that, but sounds like you had a strong manager there. So Don't get me wrong, sometimes, sometimes we were going against the organisational grain, but we knew it was for the right reasons. So sometimes people within the organisation tried to pull you back to what the way it should be, as they used to term it, but we knew that our way was probably the better way of operating. So now on to the next big question for you. What's been your biggest career challenge to date? The personal change in leadership style and how I operate it would still be my own personal biggest career challenge, particularly given that no one had really, as a, as a, a manager above me, no one had really given me the feedback I needed to become a better leader and a better person within the workplace. So to have someone that actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, have you ever thought about these different areas of the way you operate? Have you ever thought that if you did it slightly differently, you might get better outcomes? That was probably the biggest challenge because when you're in it, you think you're doing an amazing job and that you think you're fantastic. But when then you sit back and you start to get a bit more feedback from the group that you work with and all of the different pieces of feedback align from multiple different people and that your own manager's feedback aligns with their feedback, that's a pretty confronting moment. And I've seen a lot of people who get that feedback from peers and managers And they just opt out and they just go, thanks very much, but I don't want to go through that and they move on. Whereas I really wanted to persist with it and change it, but it does take 12 to 18 months before you get that change and it becomes an embedded way of operating. So that's probably my own personal challenge. I think the other career challenge for me has been around just the organizations I want to work for. You step into organizations and it takes six to 12 months to understand what it looks like. It takes for the, you know, the politics to bubble up, the, the true values of the company, et cetera. And I've seen the good, the bad and the indifferent. But I think as a career-minded person, you get into some organisations and you're trying to figure out where you fit and how you can operate best. And then thankfully, after I went through my own personal development, quickly realised that there's no point in hanging around businesses who don't value you, who don't let you operate in the way that you want to operate. And to move on quicker rather than dragging that process out is really beneficial. But previously, I would have just hung around for as long as I possibly could. But being miserable, you know, not being operating at the 100% level that I want to operate at, 
probably not getting the same outcomes and success that I want to get as well. Because back in those, I shouldn't say back in those days, it makes me sound terribly old, but back in those days, that was the right thing to do. You started a business, you were meant to be a lifer, you were meant to be there for the 10 plus years. Whereas now with so much opportunity and choice and you know, you can jump from a big corporate into a startup, into a small, medium family operated business. There's so much opportunity out there now. You just need the transferable skill set. Whereas I now know that I've got the transferable skill set. I've got the leadership ability to do it. And also I know what I'm looking for. Whereas I think a lot of people, they don't know what they're looking for when they step into a role. They're either stepping into it for the money or for the job title. And they're probably the wrong reasons to step into a role. You should be doing a lot more through that interview process to understand what the business looks like, how they're going to support you, whether you're going to click with your manager or whether you're going to have conflict, what your peers look like. People forget that the interview process isn't just a one-way street. It is for you to actually understand how the business looks as well. And you've got to do much more probing, whether the interviewing per party likes it or not. And if they don't like it, well, it's probably a good sign to tell you that that business is not the right fit for you. That's very, very insightful. So do you have a preference now for big corporations or startups or scale-ups or is it really all about the people and and your engagement with them? I think they're just different. In terms of, you know, big corporations, they've got different priorities. You are not finger on the pulse every day, whereas you step into a startup, every day is exciting or it's scary. When you're sitting there sometimes having conversations about, what's our burn rate and how long have we got to go and when are we going to run out of money or how much money do we need for this? I mean, when you have to be accountable for every dollar that you invest or spend, whereas a big corporate, when you're five, six, seven billion dollars worth of corporate, they wouldn't know where $10,000 went. It's all just sitting there in the numbers somewhere. Whereas in your startup, you know where $10,000 went, you know where the next $20 is going, and you're also focusing on different things. Everything you do on a day-to-day basis in a startup or a scale-up is going to need to contribute towards a best outcome for the business you're operating in. Whereas, you know, I got this funny story when I was working at a big corporate, we signed a huge deal in the vicinity of, you know, $100 million. And it was almost pat in the back, well done, and then move on. Can you imagine doing that in a startup though? You sit there and it was a $100 million deal for a business that might be turning over 200000 That'd be the biggest deal they've ever seen in their life. You'd be celebrating that one for weeks. So it's also just a very different working environment as well because you've got the potential to add so much more in a startup than what you do a big organisation, but the startup is not going to be able to support you or give you some of the opportunities that a bigger organisation wants. So once again, it goes back to where are you at with your career? What do you actually want from your career? What do you need to get you to the right outcomes? And for me at the moment, that's startup scale-ups and kind of that area because I want to be able to build a business, grow it, make it viable for the long term and, you know, have some fun along the way. And how do your expectations now of startups or scale-ups differ till before you joined one? Very good question. I think a lot of people outside looking in think that startups are easy. There's just money flying around, bags of cash down the hallways type of thing. It's not. And you'd know this too. It's just not. You get in there, you roll up the sleeves, you have to do in a big corporate, you sit there and you've got your clearly defined PD and you pretty much stick to that. Whereas in a startup, you know, tomorrow they might need something different than what it was today. You might be a product person, but you could be jumping in on anything on the next day. That's the world of a startup. You don't have the ability to just sit there and do your job and only your job because there's only 20 or 30 of you in the business and you need to be flexible and help everyone else out 
and work as a team. I love that. That's the thing I love about startup scale-ups is that it's more team-orientated. Everyone's a little bit closer to everything and you do have the ability to do so much more diversity in your role than what you could in a big organisation. Definitely. I think the biggest culture shock for me stepping from a big corporate into a startup was that I had all these aspirations to bring quite established process straight into a startup and obviously dreams shattered, but, you know, and building some process, but it's definitely about baby steps and thinking about like organisational maturity as a ladder rather than, hey, we can just get from a skateboard to a rocket ship overnight. So, <laughs> Yep, yep. But you look at it on the flip side, a big corporate can't operate like a startup. So you look at all the innovation hubs and, you know, they're trying to create all of these internal processes. And I think that's part of the problem. They put all these processes to try and create innovation and then they wonder why when they put $30 million to something that it fails is that you're not actually creating the entrepreneurial flair that you need to get innovation because you're trying to put it all into a little black box and say, okay, everyone think inside the black box and don't step out of it, but please be creative and come up with something amazing. And you can't do that. But in a startup, there is no box. You're just like, where are we going to go? How are we doing this? Here's our priorities. Here's the product we want to get to. How are we going to get there and and make it all work in the shortest period of time with probably the least amount of money? That's very different and conflicting to a big organisation. Definitely. And reflecting back on your career, did you have like a vision in mind when you started out and how is it obviously different now? Well, I turned 40 this year and when I was 25, when I said I was turning 40, I was going to be a CEO and I was probably going to be a CEO of a billion dollar business. I haven't quite got to that, unfortunately, <laughs> that big, hairy, audacious goal. So it's a little bit different. But I think when I got to about 35, I realized that there's not too many 40-year-old CEOs of ASX top 100 companies, which is what the ambition was always going to be. So you have to flex a little bit, but it's also a bit narrow-minded that I think a lot of 25, 30-year-olds have is that they're going to run the place pretty quickly and be the CEO, whereas it just doesn't work that way in big corporates. That makes sense. I know plenty of younger people who are in the same boat, and I'm pretty sure I was the same. So (laughs) I was going to run away to the circus, one of those. Um, So we're basically wrapping up this year. So thinking about 2022, what are you doing to prepare for the new year? Yeah, and it's been a really intense year, hasn't it? So between COVID and everything else that's been going on, both in Australia and globally, it's really time to just take a bit of a break and freshen up a bit. I think I'll go through that whole planning process for next year. I've got some really big outcomes that I want to achieve over the 12-month period. I probably do it a bit differently than what other people do. I think a lot of people come back and almost do their New Year's resolution list, whereas I do it slightly differently. I sit back and go, what didn't I achieve last year that I wanted to achieve? And then why didn't I achieve that? What stopped me from achieving that? And then I'll sit down and go through about, well, what do I actually want to get out of 2022? And it's not an exhaustive list of 10 or 20 things. It'll be in my top three. And I build a bit of a piece around it to go, what do I need to get me there? First and foremost, who do I need to get me there? And the network you have becomes so critical to get your success. So I also map out the key important people that I need to sit down with. And I'll do that anyway, because the other part that I like to do is sit down. January, February is traditionally quiet. So I'll sit down and reach out to some people that I probably didn't get to in the last six to 12 months, particularly with COVID. That network has unfortunately fallen away because you just get caught in the middle of everything at the moment. So there's a lot of 
catching up with people over the last 18 months that I've got to do. But it is about driving that success next year. Taking a break. I, know I do need to take a break. I know mentally just fatigued and a bit drained and then kind of come back and sit down and write up that list. But I think 2022 is so exciting on so many fronts. It's just how you shape it. And I've got to sit down and, and work through the wider team too as to making sure that my priorities are their priorities and vice versa, that I'm not trying to go too far away from what their priorities are and what the achievable goals are as well. So we're doing a bit of an alignment piece probably early next year as well. And what are you most excited about for next year? Oh, I've got to tell you, working in a business that has so much growth potential opportunity, the guys are fantastic. I don't think I've worked with a team that you can have a really challenging conversation with and get to the better outcomes. I'm really excited to see where we can push the business. We're, we're probably not at the point that we want to be right now, but when we look at our pipeline and we look at the opportunity and we look at the conversations we're having with some global customers and what that potentially looks like, I sit there and go, in the next 12 months, we could be anything at the end of that 12-month period. Um, no one's really heard of ResApp Health at the moment, and that's rightfully so. We haven't done everything we wanted to achieve yet, but by the end of 2022, everyone could have heard of ResApp Health. Hypothetically, we get the COVID-19 algorithms right that we're doing through our clinical trials at the moment in the US and India. It'd be amazing to sit here at the end of 22 and say, we've got the algorithms right. We've released a commercial product that you can sit there and do mass market testing for COVID-19 on your smartphone, that you could wake up every morning, go, okay, I'll do my test on my phone, cough into it five times and find out whether I've got COVID-19. You imagine that? Like that business fundamentally changes if that algorithm comes through and we can make this work. So I think that's a really exciting part. More broadly, we've got products that, it's an amazing product. It is absolutely amazing. We've got to make a few little tweaks here and there, which the dev tech and reg team are doing a fantastic job on at the moment. But once they've finished those and they put it into the, my hands and the rest of the commercial team's hands, to take that out to the global market is just going to be phenomenal. We're working with developing countries and you know we talk a lot about career, but you look at one of the values that I have, you look at the social side, the, the community, everything else that we're looking at that I you know, value so highly. When you think that we could make such a difference in some of these developing countries, we're doing some work in Kenya, which I love. Those remote communities just don't get the healthcare levels that they should, right? We've given them the opportunity to diagnose respiratory illness in those remote communities and advance the speed to help that person. For me, if you told me 10 years ago I was going to work with technology that could do that, I probably would have been jumping at it then, but it just wasn't around. Whereas now we've got this opportunity to work in these remote communities and help people. You sit there and you talk about the commercialization stage, that's fine, we'll make money, we'll continue to try and grow there. But when you talk about it from a broader social impact piece, thinking that you can help 100 million people that would never have had that opportunity in the first place to know whether they've got pneumonia, yeah, pneumonia in kids is one of the biggest killers globally. If we can help just a small proportion of that um, shift into the favour that they're going to be able to get the care they need to save lives effectively, that's exciting and it's rewarding too. One thing I missed before was when you're talking to your kids, mirror, so you sit there sometimes and you talk to your kids what you do for work and you can see the glassy eyes going, Dad, I've got no idea what you're talking about and I just don't care. But when you're talking to them now and I sit there and go, well, you know, we can do this and we can save kids, etc. To see their eyes light up and them ask more questions of, you know, you're on the right path for success. And that's not monetary. That's just 
if I can help people and they love the fact that the technology is helping people that, you know, can't afford it and and they're never going to be able to get the same level of health equity that who have been promising for so many years globally through the World Health Organization, et cetera, now might be the time to do it. We might be able to make those small advances that can make big changes in people's lives and, and save people that would never have been able to be saved before. So, yeah, really rewarding. That is one of my favourite things about health tech is the great technology, really interesting innovation and actually helping people, so changing lives for sure. And we get such a Western first developing mindset and I think that's when I looked at what ResApp Health can do, I actually sat in a great session that Pete organised with a health insurer recently where you've got all these different technologies sitting there that can bring health equity to the different parts of the world and to the world more broadly and you kind of think, are we at that tipping point now with health tech that, you know, we're finally going to move past a doctor and a stethoscope and into something that's probably a bit more substantial that's going to make significant change because we're not just relying on a single person that's been, you know, a doctor. We can actually triage people in the right way, which will help doctors, will help patients, will help the whole health chain in itself. But I feel like we're getting to that tipping point now where it could be everything scalable, You've got smartphones, we're using that as a tool to diagnose. Everything's available at the click of a button. We could be at that tipping point now where we solve some of the world's biggest challenges. I saw something on cancer the other day that we might be able to get some real developments in curing cancers. And you think that more broadly, along with being able to diagnose respiratory issues and dice or one for diagnosing skin cancer through your phone as well, you get that in the right hands. The lives you're going to save and the change in the health programs and health systems overall and bringing developing communities and countries into a bit more advancement it's exciting and the next five years going to be telling for us absolutely i do wonder what it will do to people's relationship with dr google and how they you know interface with technology (laughs) good one to watch anyway um so last question for you do you work on your strengths or do you focus on your weaknesses or a bit of both both. So I certainly turn the mirror back on myself and sit down with a couple of trusted people and work on the weaknesses. But I definitely work on, you know, making sure that you give yourself the pat on the back and you continue to develop those strengths because I think it's really critically important. We're all very negative towards ourselves at times and continually say, I need to work on this, I need to work on that. But give credit where credit's due. You might be exceptional. And this is one of those mentoring things, but you might be exceptional at something, but not even realize it because you're so focused on developing and continuing and improving on your weaknesses. But you could be fantastic and 10 times better than someone else at something. And you need to reward yourself on that and make sure that you continually bring that to the work environment that you're in as well, because people love you for it. And that could be a real strength that you just need to focus on and make sure that you keep doing because when you work in a team also, your strength can be offsetting someone else's weakness and you can make other people look good as well and you can help other people advance in their weaknesses. And yeah, it's definitely sitting down and looking at my strengths as well. Okay. I know I said one last question, but one last question. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into health tech? Yes. So my advice is do it. Take the leap of faith. You'll learn so much getting into it. Depending on your background, you'll be able to bring so much into health tech. I think it's time. I think, as I said, there is a lot of change coming to the way health systems globally operate. Unfortunately, Australia is a little bit slower than the rest of the world, but that's my own problem and opinion. If there is ever a time to get into health tech, it's now. There is so much great 
technology coming through. And going back to your very original point, if we can make AI work the way we know it can work and roll that out more broadly to underpin a lot of the technology that's coming through, the impact at scale that we can have across health is going to be phenomenal. Australian health techs are so undervalued, it's not funny. We've got some of the best health technology in the world that sits in Australia, which the government doesn't like to go out there and spruik as much as they should. But when you look at some of the health tech that's coming out of Australia, that's getting picked up globally, that's moving offshore and growing, etc. If there was ever a time to jump from big corporate into health tech, into startups, it's probably now because I reckon most of the good health tech in Australia will end up being bigger than a big corporate in the next three to five years anyway. We're getting picked up. We're getting recognized globally. There's just globally so much potential and so much opportunity that if you ever had that career ambition to travel um, or to work overseas or anything like that, health tech's where it's going to be for the next few years. Fantastic. That's very exciting. And I'm personally very glad to be a part of it too. So is there any closing comments that you wanted to make? No, thank you for this. I think it's really good. I think as people are coming through their careers, they've just got to understand that reach out to people, find a good mentor, find good people. To, it doesn't even need to be a mentor. Go and have coffee conversations with people all the time. Make sure you're doing it once a week. Expand your mindset. Don't be so closed-minded. Look at other people's opinions. Go and find someone that's very different to you, has a different background. Sit down and listen and learn from them. If you just hang out with people that look like you, then, well, guess what? You won't know too much. But I think one of the best comments I've heard lately that has really resonated that if you're sitting in a room with three other people and they're all talking the same as you, well, there's three other people in the room that are too many. So you've always got to make sure you've got diverse thinking around you because that's what's the way that's going to bring everything forward. And particularly in your businesses, you've got to have that diversity of thinking. Otherwise, you're just not going to get the best outcomes. So make sure that you get out there and talk to people, get a good mentor, get into all of those good habits that you need to get into to help your own career. There you go. That was very long. Brilliant. No, I I really appreciate it, Adam. I, I feel like I've learned so much in this session and all of your answers have been the best. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.